0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. The book of Galatians, chapter 4. And you can see on the screen, For Freedom Christ Set Us Free. And what a powerful statement that is, and how we need to understand it from God's Word. We're picking up this morning where we left off last week, thinking and Working our way through the book of Galatians, it has been a wonderful study thus far. Looking forward to today's text as well. We're going to pick up in verse 21. And uh, just as last week, the Apostle Paul, in writing this circular letter, it was a letter that was written to several churches throughout the region of Galatia. This circular letter was written to several different churches that he intended for a powerful and a significant purpose. Namely, to reestablish in their hearts the true way of salvation. And to counter a false gospel that had been preached by those known, and you have heard, of the Judaizers. Those who were teaching that salvation justification in the sight of god would only come to them as gentiles when they as it were became jews by their adherence to the law so if they would if they would believe on jesus of nazareth that's good you can do that you should do that they would say however that would not be enough you would need To obey and keep the commandments and the ordinances and the ceremonial law that God gave to the people of Israel through Moses. And so Paul writing this book as we have learned is driving home so pointedly so explicitly that no one has an excuse after reading it and understanding it that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. In Christ alone has absolutely nothing to do with your performance. Absolutely nothing to do with your work. You don't work to earn justification. You don't work to earn salvation or a right standing with God. But you receive it as a free gift from God by faith. In chapters 1 and 2. He establishes apostolic authority to speak on behalf of God, reminding them that he was chosen by Christ himself, appointed by Christ, given and taught the gospel by Christ himself, and sent even to the Gentiles specifically with the truth of the gospel. In chapters 3 and 4, in which we finish up today, he establishes a very thorough and careful argument for Justification, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And when we looked at last week's text, which was from verse 12 down to verse 20, we came to a section that was unlike any other in the book, namely a section of just a pastoral, personal plea to these Christians to not be deceived by these false teachers and not be swept up into legalism of the law or any other kind of legalism but to realize that they are free in Christ if they are in fact in Christ then beginning in verse 21 and we'll read there together down to the end of the chapter and over in if you'll notice chapter 5 verse 1 and there's a reason for that because I think that verse goes with This text more pointedly and because it's a transition statement, you'll see when we get there into the next section, because in chapters five and six of this book, he goes into the practical way that this salvation and justification and acceptance and forgiveness by faith alone in Christ alone by the grace of God alone, how that is lived out in your personal and corporate life together as a church. Chapters 5 and 6. And chapter 5, verse 1 is sort of a a bridge between the very heavy doctrinal section 3 and 4 and the very practical section 5 and 6. So chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? That's sort of a, (laughs) that's a a little bit of a wake-up statement, isn't it? We'll talk about that here in a minute. You desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the, what? The flesh. While the son of the free woman was born through what? Have we talked about those words yet? Flash and promise. It's two different things, isn't it? Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. I have to grin when I see that word. It's in the Bible and it's so strange to me. Okay, I'll tell you about that later. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. Talked about that word a lot. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is the mother. She is our mother. For it is written, Old Testament quote here, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman. Shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers. We are not children of the slave. But of the free woman. Chapter 5 verse 1. For freedom. These these numbers were not there. When he originally wrote the letter. They were added later. For freedom Christ has set us Free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So good. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Inspired, infallible, and errant, a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path. We thank you that you have spoken to us, communicated clearly, explicitly, directly to us. Preserved it carefully throughout the centuries so that we have before us this morning your word. You have spoken to us and we thank you for your word. And so we pray now that your spirit would help us to understand this text and apply it in appropriate ways in our lives as individual disciples and in our life together as a church. And God, I would even pray that there would be people here this morning that would come out from under the bondage of slavery to legalism and live their Christian life in freedom. And Lord, I pray that if there's one here that is still enslaved as they walked into this room this morning to sin, Lord, that they haven't experienced that adoption, that freedom that comes from trusting in Christ alone that today you would call them and draw them to repent and believe upon him. And we ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to share with you this morning what I believe the outline should be, about four or five points that will help us to think about this text together. <clears throat> when I began to study it, I, I usually print it out. I print it out so I can write all over it. And I print out the particular text, and I started making circles and drawing lines from one place to another as we watched the similar words connect together and the concepts connect together. I'll show you that one day as a a way to help you study your Bibles. But I didn't think it was very difficult to interpret and understand. But when I began to read the commentaries on it, (laughs) and I began to read what other people had to say about it, it seems as if we've stumbled upon one of the greatest Troubled spots of interpretation for for many people uh, for centuries. Some people have even said it's the most difficult passage in the New Testament. But I don't think it is. And I hope it's not because I'm just so simple that it just has passed me by. But I trust by God's grace that it is because it really is a simple illustration of what Paul has already been saying emphatically and explicitly and clearly in other words you can imagine a preacher he's preaching or you're wanting to drive home a point if you uh, teach children or you're a parent or a grandparent at some time you're going to try to communicate a truth to someone and and often when you communicate that truth in a very clear and explicit way you might want to try to drive it home and sort of crystallize it and solidify it in their minds by giving an illustration And I think that's exactly what we find here in this text. Paul is wanting to drive home this final kind of section, this final paragraph in his argument that spans chapter 3 and 4. That says that salvation is not on the basis of law keeping. But on the basis of grace. And it is received by faith. It is not earned From your personal performance. And he says, let me give you this final illustration of this before we get into the practical section in chapters 5 and 6. So here we go. We're going to just dive in number one. Point number one. Do you really know the Pentateuch? Do you know the Pentateuch? Do you know the law? Do you know the Old Testament? Do you know the Torah? The first five books of the Bible. You can look it up if you've never read through the entire Bible, you can look it up in and, and, and the front of your Bible very quickly and easily and see that really the people, the, the Jewish people, they really held to as sacred law and, and, and the, the contents of the first five books of the Bible that Moses gave to establish for them their life of worship And the practices and the ordinances and the principles and the commandments. And the rituals and all of that is contained in the first five books. And Paul asks these. It's kind of funny in a way because they're Gentiles. They're not Jews. But they are putting themselves under the law that God gave to the Jews. So that they can earn their salvation even though they had previously believed and trusted in Christ alone to save them. We've already learned that from previous messages. But here he asks them a very pointed rhetorical question. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Or do you not know the Pentateuch? Do you not understand the Torah? Jesus uh, in the King James said uh, the, the way it was worded there, How do you read? And it's a little bit of a wake-up kind of question, isn't it? You you say that you are under the law, and you're using the law as a means of gaining access to God. Don't Don't you know the law? And so what he's going to do is pull out a historical event from the law and show them that even therein is an illustration of the truth that you are not justified. You are not saved by law-keeping, but by faith in Christ alone. And so he says in verse 21, Do do you not know the law? Do you know what the law says? Do you not listen to what the law says? Look over in chapter 3 and verse 10. You can remember with me for just a moment. How he talks about that back there in chapter 3, verse 10. Because he introduces to them the concept that, don't you know the law? That the standard for you to be just in the sight of God on the basis of law keeping is what? Let me see, get one person to tell me what it is. What's the standard of law? If you're going to keep the law, what is the standard? Perfection. You have to keep it perfectly. So if you're going to go about... Being justified by law keeping. Then your standard is perfection. And therefore knowing that we all have sinned. and come short of the glory of God. Paul writes in Galatians 3.10. For all every single person. Who relies. On works of the law. Are under a curse. Why? Because it is written. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by. What? All things. Written in the book of the law. And do them. So, even in chapter 3, verse 10, he's already introducing to them a concept that these people have sold you a false bill of sale. Because the law itself teaches the standard is perfection, and no one has kept the law. And he says here in chapter 4, verse 21 Tell me if you desire, those of you who want to put yourself under the law, as a means of justification, do you not listen to what the law says? And it's a little bit of an, an, an embarrassment. It's embarrassing when someone says that they live by a certain law or a certain code or a certain system. And then someone else comes along and says, can I see that that book you've got there? Can I see your, your book, your holy law, your holy writings and take that very book and show you that you don't know what you're talking about (laughs) that's an embarrassing thing and it's a wake-up tactic that the apostle is using out of love for these people's eternal souls he's saying don't you understand what you're even reading and so he gets their attention sort of with a hook in verse 21 in this final section this final doctrinal section he says in verse 22, and let's turn the corner, and I'm going to call this real history. So, number one is, do you really know the Pentateuch? Number two, real history, verses 22 and 23. Now, we need to preface these these verses by thinking about something. I believe it's helpful. The Jewish people, and the Judaizers specifically, that were going about and propagating this false gospel, were very heavily reliant upon their ethnic connection to Abraham to give them the confidence that they were good to go we are ethnic Jews we are we are ethnic descendants of Abraham and therefore we are a shoe-in we are a part of the covenant people of God and a recipient of all of the blessings now you know that this is true even in the life of Jesus you can see it in a couple places If you want to turn, you can. Matthew chapter 3. You don't have to. You can listen or jot it down. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. In Matthew 3, Jesus, before Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist, the forerunner, was preaching, repent in preparation for the coming Messiah that you need to bow down to and submit to and believe in. And as he was preaching to repent of sin against God among the Jews, there were religious leaders who came to him. (laughs) And he says a very unpolitically correct thing to these men. Chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw, John the Baptist, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the religious uppity-ups, okay? They're the top of the line. Religious Jews they were coming to his baptism he said to them you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come (laughs) wow and then he says bear fruit in keeping with repentance and then you know it pops in John the Baptist's mind you know I bet I know what they're thinking I bet that they're sitting back there thinking now who is this guy to talk to us that way we are children of Abraham don't he know that? And this is what he says. He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, it's not really a big deal about for God to raise up children to Abraham. It was not, there is not a direct link between ethnic Jewishness and Justification in the sight of God. There is no direct link. It's the same thing that we read in John chapter 8. When Jesus is now dealing with these religious leaders. In John chapter 8 verses 31 to 33 he says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. If you abide in my word you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now this was immediately offensive to them. This talk of you, religious person, can be free. And they answered him. We are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they had a problem with this. They thought because they were ethnic Jews that they were automatically justified if they keep the law. And of course they had to cover over all of their mistakes by creating loopholes and all kinds of things that were unethical. But also unbiblical as well to try to justify how they could be saved and just a a in on the basis of their ethnicity. But if you want to see the real history of it, you'll have to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And we've looked at these texts a little bit before, and you can go back and read it. I, I just want to point it out to you as we think about the history of it all. Because, remember, in these verses, 22 and 23... Basically, this section is him saying there is a real historical event where Abraham had two sons in our text in Galatians, and then he gives an allegorical interpretation of that historical event, of those historical events. And then the last section of our text this morning is he applies it to them. Okay, so that's the outline right there. He asks them this rhetorical question, this hook, gets their attention. Do you even understand what, what is contained in the law? Then he gives them a little bit of the history of the reality of the of the two sons that were born to Abraham. Then he gives an allegorical interpretation of it. And then he imp- applies that to them and helps us even today. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 15, we see that God ratifies or confirms again the covenant with Abraham. And then, in in chapter 16 of the book of Genesis, it says in verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She was barren. She could not have children. It was not happening. But God had did what? what? What did God do? He had made a promise, didn't he? God had promised to Abraham that he would have descendants like the stars in the heavens. That he would have descendants like the sand on the seashore. He had said in Genesis 12. He confirms it in 15 and also again in 17. He confirms it to him that through Abraham all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And yet time is going on and there's no child. No child. But God made a promise. And she had a female Egyptian servant. She was a, uh, a slave of the household. Now, we tend to have a lot of negative uh, connotations attached to that word slave. But I want you to understand that, the, that in their culture and context, she could have a lot better life than a lot of people today experience in freedom. So, w- without diving into all of that, Just understand that she was a household servant there for Sarah. And so Sarah says to Abraham, their names hadn't been changed just yet. Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Because they did have a good theology. They understood who gives children. (laughs) And if you have a child, that it's a gift from God. And if you're not having children, it's because for whatever purpose God has, and it is a good one. You're not able to have them yet, or maybe not at all, but it is God who gives life. And they understood that, but they made a mistake. She says, go into my servant. It may be (laughs) that that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. And that, my friends, (laughs) is a classic pitfall for all of you gentlemen in the room. Listening to her voice sometimes might be a very good thing, but sometimes maybe not so much. So after Abraham had uh, listened to her, he lived. Uh, he had lived ten years in the land of Canaan. He took he took Hagar, in the next verse, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, to, as a wife. And so she then does conceive. And in the next verse, verse 4 at the end, naturally so, Hagar then begins to look with contempt on Sarah. And Sarah says to Abraham, now look what you've done. (laughs) She says, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me, between you and me. And Abram says, "Hey, she's your servant. In your power, do with her as you please." And so she dealt harshly, harshly, and and uh, with her, and she fled from her. So you can go on and and read about this story. And in essence, what happens is she conceives and she bears a son, and his name is Ishmael. Ishmael, and she is. A slave woman. She is a bond servant of the family. And she bears a son to Abraham. And then many, many years later, Abraham is a hundred years old. Sarah, at 90, finally, God answers true on his promise that he makes. And she has a son, and his name is Isaac. Isaac. And so if we go back to our text. And you can read more about that later from that history there. Let's turn the corner and think about the third section. Or the allegorical interpretation in verses 24 to 27. So there you see it in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So in verse 23 there, we have this allegorical interpretation of this historical reality. These historical events that Abraham did in fact have two sons by two different women and there's going to be an allegorical interpretation of those historical events. Now, what is an allegory? We have to establish that first. Well, it comes from two Greek words that mean another and to speak. To speak and another. To, to speak another. In other words, to have an underlying meaning. That's what the two words combined mean. An allegory means that there is a historical, there's there's this truth that is said or spoken, and then there is an underlying, equally true implication of it. An allegory. And the reason that I had to stop and, and chuckle a little bit when I read that to you earlier is because in biblical interpretation, allegory has been historically devastatingly evil and bad. I'll have to say that another way and then reinforce it again in another way. allegory as a means of interpreting the Bible, has been historically in the life of the Jews and in the life of the church, very bad. Very bad. Because you can see its appeal. You have two sons born, but the two sons, he's going to say, represent two covenants. And so if you use an allegorical hermeneutic, which is a a method of interpretation, you're going to mess up. You are going to mess up the Word of God. I I could take a lot of time to share with you some of the historically... I'm talking about 200 years before Christ was ever born. Among the Jews, among the Alexandrian Jews... The rabbis before them, their interpretation of scripture is terrible by means of the use of allegory in interpretation. So when we think about this, I want to give you a disclaimer, a warning that here, here's what I think that we should do with this. The only time that you should use allegory in interpreting the Bible is when the Bible does it for you. So, here the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, has saw fit to show us something that God understood, understands always, because he's infinitely all-knowing. But I am with that warning you that the use of allegory as a means of interpretation, as a hermeneutic, is not a good thing unless the Holy Spirit in the Word of God explicitly does it for you. Otherwise, you're going to have all kinds of stuff, all kinds of terrible, terrible doctrine. It really was all the way up until the Reformation period in the 1500s that we recovered from this kind of hermeneutic, this kind of approach to interpreting the Old Testament and the the New Testament writings as well. So beginning in verse 24... Paul is going to give this illustration that I talked about of the historical events. He says, two women represent two covenants. One produces slavery. One produces freedom. If you are born of the slave woman, you are born a slave in the household. If you are born from the free woman, then you are free. You are born free from the free woman. And so in verses 24 and 25, the first one that is mentioned is Hagar, and her son, as I mentioned, is Ishmael. So let's go back and look at it. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for what? Slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. And so the difficulty with this passage in trying to interpret it is because we don't normally associate Hagar and Ishmael with the promises of God to begin with. But if you don't muddy the waters with any of those kinds of thoughts and take it for exactly what he's trying to say, he's saying, listen. These two women represent two covenants, one to slavery and one to freedom. One of them was a slave in the household of Abraham, and she bore him a child who was born into this service as well, this slavery as well. And that, he says, corresponds to the Jerusalem at that time, and even up until today, those who are trying to climb the ladder of personal performance of the law, law law-keeping justification, are still under slavery represented in the old, in that covenant represented by Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar and Ishmael are viewed as a, of the covenant of works. Hagar is a is representative here in this allegory, in this illustration of works, law-keeping, and listen, the energy and the effort of the flesh. What were the words that I made you say out loud here this morning as we read it? Tell me you do desire to be under the law. For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Hagar and Ishmael are representatives in this allegory of law keeping as a means of justification in the sight of God. You're under bondage. You're in slavery. You're not free. It is rep- they represent self-effort. Self-effort. Legalism. Now it's interesting here that Paul says Mount Sinai in Arabia. Now here's a good thing for you to do. Take your Bible, you can flip to the back and you can find a map of the land of Palestine. You can find a map of the conquest of David probably. You can find a map Uh, uh, During the times of Abraham. And you can look there and you can see that Mount Sinai, where God gave the, the law to Moses, is outside of the promised land. It's outside of it. It's way down south. When you see later on, you can look at another map. Well, at least my Bible has it. And it has the 12 tribes of Israel and the boundaries of all of those tribes of the inhabited land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants after him. Mount Sinai is way down on the page. Now let me read it to you again now that you know that. One is Mount Sinai where God gave the law. Bearing children for slavery. Because all who seek to be justified by the works of the law are under the curse because no one can perfectly Fulfill the law. That we have established. Think about it. One is from Mount Sinai. Bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar. He adds this little bit in there. Is Mount Sinai in Arabia. All the Ishmaelites. Dwelled. Populated and settled in that area. Out from that particular area. Which is outside. Of the promised land that God. Gave to Abraham and his descendants. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So that is the first part of the interpretation allegorically that Hagar and Ishmael, the boy that was born to her, are representative of a covenant. It is a covenant of law keeping. And it represents self-effort and legalism, the attempt of the flesh, the attempt to the energy of the flesh to be justified in the sight of God. Second, the second part in verses 26 to 28, the first part, you have the second covenant delineated. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free. And we know that this is coming through Sarah, who was blessed with the child Isaac. And she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So at that point, we see the second woman in the second covenant. Sarah and Isaac represent grace. They represent a covenant of grace. They represent faith. Sarah and Isaac represent promise. What comes to us by promise. Not what comes to us through law keeping and self effort. But what comes to us as a promise from God. What comes to us not because we earn it through self effort. But what comes to us by grace. Grace. And what is to be received not as payment for our goodness and our achievement. But as a free gift to be received by faith. You can think of it like this. uh, Ishmael was a son in a natural way. Here, take my servant girl. And you have a child. Sure, God gave Life, but it's just a natural course of things. It's why he uses this term flesh over and over again. According to the flesh, according to the natural state of things, the natural way things go. But Isaac was born by promise. Isaac was born through a divine miracle of God. Abraham was a hundred years old. Sarah was ninety years old. <laughs> And she was barren. She could not have children. And God gave life. God in a divine miracle gave life and she bore a son. You see the difference? You're starting to see the difference in these two covenants? He's just driving home the same point that he's always been making in this letter. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about this. Maybe it would be good to look at that. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11. You can just listen as I read it. It's talking about this. He makes a big deal here. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had, guess what? Promised Therefore, verse 12, from one man and him as good as dead, this old man, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. She corresponds to the Jerusalem from above, Paul says. This is a spiritual city. A spiritual Jerusalem is a representation of the covenant of grace. Not works. Representative of a covenant of grace received through faith. It comes as a result of the promise of God. The law says, do this, do this, do this, do this, right? That's what the law says. Do this. When you come to the promise, it says, God says, I will, I will, I will. See the difference? It's not... Do, but what what you do or are going to do, but it's what God is going to do. It's what God has promised and what God will fulfill. You're in Hebrews chapter 11. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, you'll see this. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18, talking about these two places and these two covenants and these two realities. For you have not come to what may be touched A blazing fire in darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. That's what happened on Mount Sinai in Arabia. That's what happened when God gave the law, remember? For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, this is a quote, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But listen to this. Here's the other. Here's the new covenant. The new Jerusalem. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You have the mountain that no one can touch. It only brings death. It only brings slavery. And then you have the new city of Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem. And you're coming into the, camp, the company of angels. You're coming into the company of all of those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You're coming into the new spiritual city to God, to Christ Christ. As children of promise, children that have been adopted, children that have been redeemed, children of grace, children of faith, children of promise. Well, let me make three quick observations in application. We're done. In verse 28, over to chapter 5, verse 1, as we close. He applies this. Verse 29. Persecution. Just as the child born through self-effort who represents slavery and bondage to the law persecuted the child who was promised, the child that was free, the child that was born of uh, according to the promise of God and not through self-effort and not through uh, the efforts of the flesh, But through the divine miracle of God, as he promised he would do, there was persecution from the child of the flesh to the child of the promise. He says, that's exactly what you and I need to expect if we are in Christ. Legalists love to persecute the true believer. They want to bring you to slavery. Essentially, they want you to be miserable like they are. Because misery loves company. Verse 30. Inheritance. Inheritance. Quoting from the Old Testament and the story of historical events. What happened was the the son uh, of the slave woman was to be cast out. Because she and he would not inherit with the child of promise. Verse 30. Same thing. Today, in application, Paul is saying to you and I and to them that there there is a dividing point that will come. One day it it will be made evident. One day it will be made so crystal clear who the true and who the false are. And there is a divine, eternal inheritance to those of promise, to those who receive it as grace. To those who receive it as a gift. To those who receive it by faith. There's an inheritance. Third. Chapter 5 verse 1. And we'll come back to this next week. Lord willing. Don't go back. To slavery. Persecution. It will. If you're a child of God. But there is coming a day when the inheritance will be fully realized for those who are the children of promise. So don't go back and put yourself under a yoke. You know what a yoke is? You take two, uh, two donkeys, two horses, and uh, you want to plow a field with them, let's say. And you need their power, so you hook them together. And the way you hook them together is with a yoke. It's heavy. <laughs> it's hard. He says, don't put yourself back under the yoke. Don't. You're free in Christ. Don't go grab the yoke off of the table and put it back on yourself to try to live the Christian life through some kind of legalism and self-effort. That's bondage. And he's going to take the rest of chapter 5 and the rest of chapter 6 to tell us how we do live it. If it's not through legalism and self-effort. And he gives us a hint, by the way. And I'll point it out again next week. But he does something so interesting. I know you probably closed your Bible. In verse 29. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh... Persecuted him who was born according to the. Now, if you're not looking, what would you put right there? So far, we have not used, he has not used this word. Promise, right? He's been, he's been using that all along. Flesh over against promise. But listen to what he says again. But just as the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So, a remarkable thing right there. He just connected, and so i, I you remember me telling you about circling and pointing and drawing arrows? Promise, 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 promise. Spirit. He just connected those two. Born according to the natural order, the flesh, legalism, bondage, slavery, and then promise born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. The supernatural birth. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And we just pray that through my fumbling and bumbling, Lord, that you will teach us, help us to just leave this place understanding that Paul was in this final section to this great historical defense of This doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. That he illustrates it by pointing back to the two sons that were born to Abraham. Just crystallize it in our hearts. One represents slavery and legalism and self-effort. And one represents freedom and grace and faith and promise. And Spirit. Oh God, I pray this morning that you will help us to live in that freedom by the power of your Holy Spirit. And if there's one here today that is, came into this room lost, undone, Lord, came into this room trying to live the Christian life through the el- effort of the flesh, you would grant them even now the power and the grace to come out into the life that is in Christ. Help them even now, Lord, to repent, turn away from sin, turn away from self-effort, and trust in the finished work of the cross. Trust in Christ alone and what he did to be the basis of their pardon, the basis of their acceptance, the basis of their forgiveness, the basis of their justification and salvation. I pray that in the name of the Lord Jesus by faith. And amen. Amen.